You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area. Local investors, local knowledge, local experts. Our journey starts now. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. We took last week off, but now we're rolling again. Uh, my name is Russell Brazil. I am an associate broker with Arla Real Estate. I'm Sarah Frank. I am also an agent with Arla um, and also on the district invest team with Russell. And I'm Ron Gallagher, and I'm retired. And uh, today we brought Ron in because we are talking about a deal we're trying to take down with Ron. And all of Ron's deals that we uh, execute tend to be fairly complicated, particularly on the financing side. And so we really need to get together and brainstorm. And I said, well, if we're going to brainstorm how to take down this property, let's go ahead and uh, record our brainstorming session so you guys can kind of see the the process we go through in trying to figure out how to uh, get one of these complicated deals uh, taken down. Right. You might experience an epiphany. This is how this my mind works. We're going to document how my mind works. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, last week, I think you texted me middle of the night. Maybe there was some uh, illicit substances involved. How dare you? But you were like, I have figured out how we're going to get this property. And this, let's uh, actually, let's talk first about what, what the property is, because it is a very unique and complicated property. And I think in describing the property, um, people might understand why it is complicated to finance. Right. So the seller is the a person, gentleman who it sold me my property in College Park, right by the metro station there in College Park. And this particular property was burned out. I think he bought it as a shell at some point. And then he just divided it up into... The property that you own. The property that... You want to buy? subject property. Oh, okay. Yep, the one next door. So, you know, he just divided it up into units. There's no common area. If you walked inside, it looks like an apartment building. The problem is that it's in a residentially zoned... Uh, single unit residential single zone family, property. right? R fifty five, and so you so commercial lenders aren't going to lend on that. Residential lenders aren't going to lend on it because FHA guidelines say that you can't lend on a rooming house. So it's just in this purgatory. And this the seller, Alan, is his name. Um, he even admitted to me several times, like maybe I've created a building that I can't sell. Actually, sell. So yeah, let's dig down this a little bit. So it is a single-family zoned area, and legally this property is a single-family property. But when you walk in the front door, it is like a five-unit multifamily property with five separate distinct units, each with living rooms, bedrooms, kitchens, and bathrooms. Each unit has its own, except each unit does not have a stove, right? Right. Because a single-family home can only have a single stove. So only one of the units has a stove. Exactly. But other than that, they are essentially five separate apartments and well-sized ones, too. Yeah. And so the challenge is, because it's the same challenge we faced with the College Park property that I bought. Yeah. But this is going to be a bigger loan. and Right. So the last property we bought uh, from Allen, which was the same sort of thing, uh, that was about a let's just call it a $500,000 property. Mm-hmm. And it was bringing in about $5,000 a month in rent. This property is going to be closer to 800,000 because it brings in 
8,000 a month rent because it's uh, substantially bigger units than the one you have next door. Right. I have a lot of studios and these are like huge one bedrooms. Yeah. So pretty expensive property, you know, definitely not cheap. It's it's a DC priced property in College Park. Right. So when I'm going to all these lenders trying to get a loan and financing on this funky property, they would be much, they were already, no one said yes, except for Eastern Savings Bank. But, um, you know, I'm not going to have it, but that was like a $300,000 loan. You know, it's going to be difficult to find a lender, even more difficult to find a lender for a bigger loan. Like yeah. This. Cause we can't do a single family loan conventional on this because an appraiser walks in and says, this does not meet the underwriting requirements of what a single family property is. Right. Even though it's zoned that way, it is a hundred percent legal in the use of it, but, but Fannie Mae won't loan on it. Conversely, most commercial lenders don't want to do what they call rooming houses, um, especially if it doesn't have a rooming house license, which this doesn't because the legal use is single family. But we are using it legally. There are only five unrelated people on the property, which is what county law and college park law calls for. So the use is legal, um, but it just doesn't meet what a commercial lender wants typically or what the conventional lenders want. Right. So it's super clever. Um you know, Alan saying that, oh, I think I've created a property I can't sell. That's the byproduct of this super clever strategy, which is making tons of cash flow by creating units in these single family homes that just don't have a stove. Yeah. But you can get instead of what you get, I don't know what you get in College Park for a room, five, six hundred dollars. Now you're getting the market rate for a one bedroom in a studio in College Park is, you know, like $1,300 a month. So he can get that. And then, you know, sure, 10% of his tenant pool gets upset that there's no stove because they're a cook or whatever. But most of these people are, you know, college people or whatever. They're not, you know, that you get a hot plate, a toaster oven, a microwave. You can put it all together and you can cobble together your own stove equivalent. So as long as you're not a chef looking for a chef's kitchen, I mean, this is really a super clever strategy to make. Yeah, so the, it'll rent well. for a little bit less than a true one-bedroom apartment because it doesn't have the stove, but substantially more than just a room rental situation. Exactly. Um, so, so really unique property, but very, very hard to finance. Right, because Alan bought all these properties and held all these properties without a mortgage. So he really is admittedly naive to the financing part of it. So that's where it became our responsibility to try to figure out how to finance this. And we just realized with the first College Park property that I tried to buy that was set up like this rooming house situation, it's nearly impossible. I, I mean, when I when I say that I called 100 internet lenders and whatever, and they would all tell the same story. We went down this road with another lender just recently. Uh, they all say, yeah, I don't see any problem with it because it's such an anomaly. It's, it's, it's a case that they're never going to see. It's like going to the doctor and you have some rare disease. You know, it was like they, they're all going to say, yep, we can handle this. We know exactly what to do. And then when you start getting into the guidelines, you realize, OK, this this it's just not going to work. Is he not open to seller financing at all? Did you guys he's, go down that he's road 70 something and he's just trying to get, divest and get out of it. Um, additionally, he, the seller, he's a rare coin collector. 
Right. He doesn't have kids. So it's like, what are you going to do with these millions of dollars you've accumulated? And what he wants to do is he is building up this coin collection. I forget what he collects specifically, but his collection of these rare coins are ranked. What is it? Like 10th in the world of the specific collection. And he wants to move, keep moving up before he dies. So saying that when, with the proceeds from the sale of the first college park property, when he sold it to me, he said that, this will allow him to buy more coins <laughs> that will bring him to the like number two slot or something. <laughs> and I and, and you can laugh about this, but I hesitate to make fun of anything that Alan does because, like I've said this before, Alan is me in 30 years. Yeah. Like he he is just I, I we have so much in common. If you remember at the settlement table, he was worried that. They, that the title company didn't escrow enough money for the water bill that comes out quarterly. So he pulls, um, you know, some cash out of his pocket, but it's in a money clip. And I'm like, Alan, look at this. And then I pull out of my pocket my money clip because I don't carry a wallet around either. I just carry my ID and some cash. Uh, so, you know, it was that moment that I realized I'm looking across the table at me in 30 years. Yeah. So I'm sure I will be a rare coin collector in when I'm seven, I mean, we we all uh, have the things we like to spend money on. As I look across the room, I've got my wrestling action figures over there, right? We all have sort of ridiculous things we like to spend money on. For Alan, it's ridiculously expensive coins. Which, if they appreciate in value, I mean, what are you going to – Yeah, but uh, that argue. brings us back to seller financing, probably not up his alley because then he, he wants large sums of money to go buy these coins. But you do make a good point, though, because – Back in 2018, when we were buying the first College Park property, he it was an absolute 100% no when we would – because it was, like, really our only option. Right. And then now that he's seen how hard it is and he's tried to engage other buyers and, you know, I – you know, they talk about, like, you just got to wait for the right buyer or whatever. I'm the right buyer. I'm the buyer for this property. Alan has found me and I'm the one – to buy this property. So it's our responsibility to figure out how to do it. But now that the realization is starting to sink in, he's been trying to sell this second college park property for like two years now, right? Right. And I think this is starting to set in. So that was actually part of the equation. The way that I thought it all out is that I need about a loan for about $300,000 and maybe he would carry that back. And and I was. Uh, if we can get him a, a large enough big sum of money, maybe he carries some of it back. Right. Or maybe we even are able to negotiate the price down because of how funky it is to get this sold. Right. But probably not. And also, I think we're getting 2019 prices. And Th- that is true. So I do think. He hasn't asked for an increase. So this is our valuation of the building is based on the. The rent to price ratio that we bought the last one at, and how, what year did we buy that? Twenty. It was uh, December like twentieth, twenty eighteen. So. Yeah. So we're 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 buying this basically at a twenty eighteen valuation, um, even though it's more expensive. So it's actually it's a good deal for us on the buy side. Great deal. And there, one of the ways that I thought about seller financing would be if he carried that three hundred thousand dollars back for me in seller financing. I don't need the cash from the College Park property. so when I you got, have enough cash to live on currently. I have enough cash flow to live on currently. So that would all just be like bonus money. 
So since I don't need it in 2022, I could make an agreement with Alan that I'm going to pour all the profits back into him. I'm going to pay him off as fast as possible. So if I'm making $5,000 a month off this property, you got to think that maybe it'll be a little, uh, my cash flow will be a little higher if I'm the way that, and we'll talk about this in a second, but the way that I'm cobbling together all these funds, um, you know, the loan won't, my loan payment won't be as big as it might be if I took out a $800,000 commercial loan. So I just pour that $5,000 in cash flow. Every month I give it back to Alan. And then, you know, in maybe three or four years, I've you'd have the whole thing paid, paid back. And that's the worst case scenario. Yeah. I'm gonna come up with some money somewhere along the lines within the next two, three years that I'll just be able to pay him off. Yeah. So let's talk about how we financed the first one because we've alluded to the fact that you called a hundred lenders, I called a hundred lenders, and these rooming house situations are just impossible to finance. Um and I think we found one rooming house lender was like 50% Dell TV and we didn't have 50% down then. Um, but we went to uh, Eastern Savings Bank and Scott Freetag is who we use there. He's an awesome, awesome lender. And Scott loves to do these weird loans, um, particularly for a buyer that has maybe a good but unique financial situation. So Ron, Ron has lots of equity in other properties, right? So he has a net worth wise has a substantial net worth. Right. But is not, was not reworking at the time. I can't remember. So you were working. Um, but these properties are unfinanceable, but they're huge cash cows. And Ron had all these other properties. So to Scott, Ron looks like a good, good person to lend to because he's like, all right, he's got millions of dollars in these other homes. Um, how can we make this work? And Scott was able to make it work. Maybe not with the, most best terms we would love, but he was able to get it done. We bought the property. In the end, we got the job. It took five, you know, the contract that we were at, the property was on a contract for five months. We did get it done. I bought the property. Now, I paid off that loan within a year, which is the same thing I, you know, assume I would do with a seller financing with Alan because I didn't like the terms of it. You know, I mixed and matched my mortgages and put my, put a, you know, a mortgage on a property that I own free and clear and then paid off. So if I, if I remember correctly, I think we had a 25 year amortization on that, on that loan. That's correct. Um, five and a half percent interest rate, which was a lot a few years ago, not a lot today. Right. Um, in a three year call, right? Right. So the three year call is what I was worried about. You asked if I was working at the time I was, and my concern was it was basically the three year call. Wasn't, uh, it it was basically, we're going to, you're going to have to re, Reapply for the loan in three years. Right. We're going to reevaluate everything. And we might not, um, you know, Scott was trying to reassure me, like, look, if a loan is performing and you're paying it as agreed every month, why would we as an investment bank pull that loan out? But there's not to say that they're not going to say, okay, everything's going good, but you know what? We're going to charge you 8% or whatever this, this, this next three years or whatever. And I knew that I was going to be quitting my job within the next, well, it was the next, within the next you know year. So I didn't know it was going to be within the next year, but I knew that the, my end game was that when that three year call happens, I was not going to be employed. So I was going to lose a hundred, you know, six figures of income. And they look at your global cash flow 
And I was just, I just did, I was if very your global cash flow was suddenly going to be a hundred thousand dollars a year less because exactly. you're retiring. Exactly. Maybe that impacts whether they requalify you. So exactly. I get that. I get that anxiety. So I was very concerned about the three year call. Now, if we put the mortgage on there or whatever, if I'm qualifying for the, for the loan now, then I don't see my position changing for the negative yeah. in three years. In three years, I hope to have even more money, but. Um, but, but at the time in 2018, when I was working and I knew I was going to quit and the end game was retirement, the three-year call was scary. Yeah. So we ended up paying that off. And in fact, I think, um, if I remember correctly, we use the pro, so we, you had a condo in, um, Southwest, right? right? And I don't know if that was, was that losing money every month at that uh, point? Probably like losing a thousand dollars. Yeah. Month. So we took that asset that was losing money. Um, and it was losing money because we'd pulled cash out of it. Right. Um, but we sold Sold that off in unique circumstances, took that cash, and then paid off the College Park house. So I think I did use the con. So I call it like the Monopoly game where you mix and match. And, and Russell and I talk about this all the time. Like you have to look at everything holistically. You have to look at the whole portfolio. Your whole, you know, what what can your can can your can you take a quick loan out of your four hundred one k to get fifty thousand dollars to um you know, make the deal happen and then you'll pay it back, pay it back within 60 days and there'll be no real consequences or, you know, you have to think of everything, yeah. your whole portfolio and not just real estate. And so, so while that one asset was losing a lot of money per month, owning that asset allowed you to do other things with your portfolio through, through the course of time. Right. But so, now the time had come to let it go. Right. Um, during the pandemic, my cash flow suffered and, if that's losing, it was an opportunity to optimize my portfolio. Like, okay, maybe if times were, there was not pandemic times, I might've kept it around because yeah, I was losing a thousand dollars a month. That's $12,000 a year, but it was appreciating on average $15,000 a year. So it's like, ah, eh, well, whatever. I'll yeah. This is a condo more. you'd bought for about a hundred thousand and sold for 400,000. It was right? my so very it- first condo that I bought when I was like 22, my very first foray into real estate, my very first, you know, uh, property in Washington, DC when I'm becoming an adult. And I even moved back into it in 2016 when I moved back to DC after like a nine year mini retirement in South America. So I love that condo. And now that's where the wharf is. It was one block from the $2 billion DC wharf project. Now it's the hottest neighborhood in DC. Right. So, um, but anyway, the point is mix and match take like monopoly cards, Mm -hmm. you know, Think about where you can use your mortgages. And and so I uh, applied a mortgage to a property that I own free and clear to be able to pay off the College Park property and pay off that loan, the commercial loan with the terms I didn't like and specifically the three-year call. So, but just to back up one other thing, everyone always talks about this. This is not the epiphany part of this podcast, but one of the things that Scott from Eastern Savings Bank told me, and this is, um, remember, the only lender that said yes, is he said there was something like the three C's that he lends on. Credit, something else, and then character. And Russell had invited me to uh, meet a real estate meetup in like Anne Arundel County. Remember we were whatever. And then when everyone packs up and goes home, there was like four of us that just stayed super late talking, gabbing about real estate and whatever. And it was me, someone else, Russell and Scott. 
and that was the day that I met Scott. That was long before we needed him for financing. But when we call him and engage with him, we could say, remember, hey, remember? We, we met me, we met you back in the day. Exactly. Remember? remember we were, you know, hanging out after the podcast after, I mean, after the, uh, the meetup after hours and after conversations with him, Scott was very, Scott had really good bedside manner. Like he's like, just call me if you ever have any questions. There were times when he would chat with me for like an hour while I'm trying to, you know, we're trying to figure out how we can make this work. And, and he was very patient with me. And I think during those conversations, he realized that, you know, he could go to the board of direct, they have to have like meetings and they have to like decide, cause this is the, like the portfolio lender, like this is their money from Eastern savings bank. So they had to like, Scott had to like go pitch this loan to the board of directors to convince them that it was a good loan that they should fund. And, I think those conversations with Scott made him realize that I fit the, at least the third C, which was character. And so it goes back to the networking thing and whatever. Networking, relationships. And this is what a lot of people don't think about. How can I, re- how can I leverage the relationships I have with an individual? How can I lev- leverage that and extend that out further to the relationships they have with other people, right? So – you had a relationship with me and I had a relationship with Scott. So you're leveraging to start my relationship with Scott in order to build your own with him. Right. And we, if we always start thinking sort of geometrically further, right, think about it. That's why it's important who the professionals are that you work with because you're getting access to these per- people's networks. Exactly. Yeah. So – I just wanted to mention that because that was a part of it, because if we would have called Scott totally out of the blue, like already this loan is really sketchy. (laughs) We're talking about some wacky thing. He probably just blows you off if if you hadn't met him before and established a relationship. Right. So I think that was part of the reason why I didn't get a no right off the bat like we did with the other 100 lenders we called. Yeah. You know, he's like, oh, yeah. And now if we went up to Scott and part of this part of my equation for taking down this second uh, college park property is potentially going back to Scott and saying, hey, now that I own that college park property free and clear. Can we put like you've done it before, you've done your due diligence, we've put the loan on that property before. Can we put another loan on it now? Yep. Maybe that's how we get the three hundred thousand dollars. We I call it self cross collateralization yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where you're the bank isn't cross collateralizing you're doing it by putting the collateral up as you know my property that I own free and clear and the subject property cuz what gets us what kills the deal on the subject property if we get to this point is the appraiser yeah when the appraiser goes he sees that it's a funky property and it's not financeable and every deal dies so if we never have to invite an appraiser into the house because I'm cobbling together the 800000 that Alan wants for the property by putting a loan on a different property that I own, by cobbling together the other things that we're going to talk about, then we never have to send an appraiser to that house. So we're buying the subject property with the subject property never being the collateral. Yeah. So let's dig into this, right? Because this is the whole point of it is how are we going to cobble together the money to make this purchase from – Several different sources, it sounds like. Um, let's go through that uh, that plan and that logic and see what 
Sure. So it all starts. See how convoluted it gets. And the more convoluted it gets, usually means we're getting closer to making it happen. (laughs) So it all starts when the SBA sends me an email. Hey, do you want some more money for your EIDL loan? Like, I didn't ask for it. I don't need, I don't hear people clamoring for it. But sure, if you want to give me more money at 3.5% on a 30-year fixed where I don't have to fill out much paperwork or whatever, I mean, sure, I'll take that. That's funny because they. I just got the email where they were deferring. I was getting ready to pay back my right, EIDL loan. It, it just got deferred another six months. I'm hoping this is not going to happen, but I'm hoping it's not going to happen because the economy is going to recover after the pandemic. But um I would just love for them just to say, you know what, we're going to forgive the loan totally. I think all of us that have these uh, SBA and EIDL loans are hoping for that. <laughs> so let's all work together to make that happen. <laughs> student loans first. Oh, I don't have student loans. So I don't care about that. <laughs> and I think college is overrated. So um, I don't want to encourage people to go to college. <laughs> so um, that's a whole racket, but we can get into that in a separate podcast. <laughs> So it's the SBA, and I'm like, okay, they're offering me $80,000 more. I uploaded my 2019 tax return and some document that I signed at the moment saying that my company is owned by me or whatever. I don't know. There's some affidavit that I have to sign. Upload those two documents. We'll see. My loan is my loan adjustment is being processed. I don't know. I'm assuming in like two weeks I'm going to have $80,000 in my account for uploading two documents. So then I'm starting to think, okay, I've got – now that – I'm starting to get out of the quicksand of the pandemic. My vacancies, I have no vacancies right now. My deadbeat tenants are starting to either pay up or we've gotten the rental assistance program from the county or I've, you know, they've moved out. I've absorbed the loss and moved on with my life and put a paying tenant in there. So, yeah, so this is an important part, right? So your investment strategy leads to drastically higher cash flows, right? doing this rent by the room strategy throughout most of DC, higher cash flows, but higher risk, right? We're di- not dealing with a high income family who's living there for 10 years, paying their rent every month. So you experience part of that risk, right? It happens, but now you're up, you're back to your portfolio being optimized and cash flowing properly. I wouldn't say it's optimized, yeah. but we're, I'm working towards that end. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it will be optimized when the 92 year old guy living in my college park property is not paying $800 in rent. He's paying 1300 yeah. or whatever, but that's not going to happen. So um, I, I always have one, at least one charity case <laughs> in my, as my, in my tenant pool. But so it is riskier, but at the same time, I can rewarded for that risk. You are making a lot more rent per property right. than I do. You're rewarded for that risk. I would say almost the risk isn't the trade-off, it's the time. Yeah. It is much more management intensive. When you talked to we were hanging out one night, Russell and I, and Russell mentioned something about maybe buying a a, a, a row house in Columbia Heights and doing the rent by the room strategy. I just don't know if you have the patience for that. The patience Russell. or the yeah. time, yeah. Because the people are you know, the tenants are are like you gotta give, be called in to be the referee every once in a while. From stuff as simple as what are we going to set the thermostat to? Because the guy in the attic is going to be much hotter than the person in the basement. So, you know, but, um, but it is higher reward and people talk about, Oh, real estate is get rich slowly. I was thinking about this the other day. I got rich pretty fast. 
<laughs> like okay. I got I got I got rich. I turned in from like a lowly government employee to on personal capital right now. Like I'm killing it. Like now I understand. Now you're a baller. Yeah, that's because I mean, you're like actually using your assets to buy more assets. And right. I think a lot of people don't really understand that and why we push so hard for people to get into real estate investing. Because like when you were getting a mortgage on your income, that's not really a loan on a house. It's a you're borrowing on your income. Like and that people don't get that. There's a difference between using the assets you already own to pay for things or taking out a loan from a bank on the income you're earning because that could go away any right. second. So I think you're playing really smart and being creative. Yeah. Well, also, and I also recently figured it out. Actually, actually, I figured out everything. I figured out the secret of life. If we want to have a separate podcast, we can do it. But one thing I figured out recently, and this comes from poverty mentality. And my parents grew up in northern Maine and one of the poorest counties in the country. And we have this Poverty. I've been. I've grown up with this poverty mentality, where if you have a broken coffee mug and the handle's broken off, you got to save the coffee mug because you might be able to use it as a pencil holder or something to hold up the couch when one of the legs breaks or something. So I haven't fully processed it yet, but having that poverty mentality ingrained into me for forty years, it allowed me to delay gratification and get to this point. But now that I'm at the point where the delaying gratification is over and it's now time to gratify, thank God I switched out of the poverty mentality just before I quit my job, which allowed me to buy a four-level million-dollar forever home in D.C. If I didn't do that, I would have spent the whole pandemic in a you know in a basement uh, apartment with tenants stomping above me. But I I, got, I don't know how many how much of your audience comes from a. Uh, poor is maybe the wrong word, yeah. but frugal. Yeah. Just like frugality. There's like abundance. Everyone pushes like having an abundance mindset, but if you got to save money, you got to save money. Especially right. If you have houses to buy. Right. Um, I think that it's almost an advantage to come from a background like that because you view money very differently from someone who grew up. With Definitely was an advantage during the buying process. Now that I've reached financial freedom, I it's it's been a challenge for me to bust out of the poverty mentality. But as I'm emerging from the poverty mentality, the poverty mentality also is like you again, I haven't been able to articulate it perfectly because I haven't really fully processed it. But it's like it's almost like you don't deserve it or you don't think, you know, some poor again, I don't think poor. We're more working class. My parents were state government employees, never making a whole lot of money. (laughs) But it's not like we lacked anything but we never had cable you know what i mean like all my friends are watching mtv and stuff like that and i've got the three channels that you got in northern maine one of which is canada (laughs) so um it's just like you just don't feel like you deserve it or like if i tell you right now that i'm you know three million dollars on personal capital net worth that's still surprising to me because like you just don't think you can be a Try millionaire when you're just this poverty mentality. Well, it's from- it's funny because I I saw one of your mindset changes in this area not that long ago, right? So we used to go to wrestling and we used to look for the seats that were the oh well, best. This is you're doing was the best value, <laughs> and then I think I, I 
at one of these pro wrestling events I, I took you to, we sat in the first or the second row and you're like, this is fucking awesome. Right. So now I don't do anything. My thing for sporting events is because Russell was like, oh, we got some NBA tickets. Do you want to go to the NBA game? And I'm like, this is going to sound really snobby, but where are the seats? Because I don't do anything but floor seats now. If I go to an event and I have to watch the event on the Jumbotron, I might just as well be home watching it on my 2200-inch projection screen. I need to be in the front row or at least the floor seats watching it. And okay. our seats for the NBA game were like, what? Money bags. Fun. And why are you stressed about financing this property? Why don't you just pay for it in cash? Well, no. oh, well we still got to come up with $800,000, right? But so. I think we found a way to do it. So, so this dumped so, it. So, so thank you for keeping me on track. Yeah. So SBA loan comes in 80000 Properties are not optimized, but cash flow is starting to return to pre-pandemic levels. For the first time in my life, I have... $70,000 of cash in the bank. Now, I've had $70,000 in cash in the bank before, but it was all earmarked saving up for the $200,000 I need to buy a million-dollar row house to take down yeah, a rental. Every time, every time we buy a new property for Ron, we get that down payment up. We spend every last time to get the next property and then start repeating. So constantly starting at zero to bring that savings up and right. We're not buying cheap houses. There's they're often $200,000 down payments. Right. So we're always on the edge of getting this to work. And then like, so I thought I was going to have to put 20% down when I bought the college park property that I, that I bought in 2018. But the terms of the commercial loan from Eastern savings bank is 25% down. That's $50,000. I already have come, you know, I've exhausted every Avenue. What, how can I, come up with 50 more thousand dollars and then also a condition of the commercial loan is they want to see reserves so, so now even more money how am i going to have a hundred thousand dollars in reserves you're depleting all my money from this so i will say one other thing i always talk about going to zero when we buy a property and this is not recommended obviously but i was at a point where my Properties were cash flowing and I had my my government job. So I was able to bank. And this is also when I still had the poverty mentality when I was delaying gratification and my expenses were like $2,000 a month. So I was able to bank $10,000 a month. So even though I was going to zero, in five months, I was going to have $50,000 back in the bank. And that five months it took us to uh, to. Get the, allowed that allowed income me, to right. or that savings to so build up. That's how I could come up with fifty thousand dollars more in down payment money. And I'll also say one last thing about the going to zero. People keep their cash fund as their emergency fund. Not only was I able to build up a depleted emergency cash fund quickly, but I had a HELOC the whole time. So I had a thirty thousand dollar HELOC on my little condo. So. um there was my emergency money. Yeah. If the roof blew off one of my properties and insurance didn't cover it, there was the, that's how I was going to pay for that. So lines of credit can be very important during times of catastrophe, right? And I really think that that's the way to go. I mean, it's the way I go. So of course I think it's the right option, <laughs> but I really think it's the way to go because if you're sitting on $70,000 in cash or $200,000 in cash is what it takes to buy one of these you know properties in DC. You should you shouldn't just be keeping it in emergency money. You should be putting it to work. The HELOC is a great emergency fund because 
I never had to tap into it. Yeah. I never had to tap into it for emergency purposes. So you're hedging and self-insuring against an emergency that's never going to happen. And you're, it's the, op- I mean, I'm not an economics major, but I think that's what they call opportunity cost, right? Yeah. Where you're wasting the opportunity that you could be using that cash. So I was always looking for how could I reinvest this cash when I get to a point that I could, uh, you know, p- p- pay for another down payment. So I really think the HELOC strategy, using the HELOC as your emergency cash fund, which it, that's what it is, like break glass in case of emergency. You never have to break the glass for your emergency cash. So why hold that cash and not have it do anything? Yeah. Just have a, just go take out a HELOC and have that be your emergency cash. Yeah. So we got um, the money coming in from SBA. We have 70 grand in the, in the bank. So now we're up to uh, 150,000. Okay. Then I have a HELOC. Because, again, I'm a genius. So before I quit my job, what we, Russell and I did was we put a, a HELOC on my primary residence, which, again, you need to bring your real estate agent to the appraisal so you get the property to appraise for the highest amount because that affects what your line of credit is going to be. So Russell convinced, persuaded, maybe the appraiser did it on his own, but he valued my property at a very high amount. And this is before the pandemic, before the latest appreciation and whatever. Yeah, there's a whole process with appraisals I go through, specifically with the types of comps I have, um, specifically with how I try to interact with the appraiser, what the things I say to him about those comps. Um, I've got a whole process, and as Ron can test, I've helped Ron with several appraisals now. Um, it, they've the process works. I don't want to sound like Johnny One Note because I think I've brought this up a lot on your podcast, but. I can't overstate how important it is to have your real estate agent go to the appraisal because you don't have to do that, Russell. You don't have to go to an appraisal for a HELOC. I mean, that's not we're not bought. You know, you're you're getting nothing out of that, (laughs) you know. But if you can, if you're um, if you know what, if you're an agent listening, this is what I'm getting out of it. Right. Because now it's a couple of years later. Now I'm trying to help you buy the next property. But I've helped set you up for better financial success by helping you earlier maybe on something I didn't make any money on. Right. But now it's paying, it will pay dividends here several years later. Right. Good point. Excellent point. It's taking a global view of your relationships, your business, your portfolio, everything, everything should be this global holistic view. Like we were talking about earlier. Right. Don't be so short sighted by thinking, Oh, well, I'm not going to help this investor, uh, client of mine with the, the appraisal for his HELOC yeah. because because ultimately your success is also going to be my success. And maybe I can't, I can't, maybe I can't see exactly how helping you out right here with, with something I'm not making money on will help me later, but I know it will. Right. So, and it will now it's playing out right now. Right. Because without the heat, without the hundred. So I end up because it appraised for so high, I ended up getting a line of credit for $160,000. So the idea for that was originally before I quit my job is that I'll have a little like, you know, I could be my own bank. I was so sick of all the lenders telling me no all the time. I was like, let me give myself a little line of credit that if I want to buy a condo in Florida for $150,000 when I quit my job and I'm no longer financeable, uh, I could just go buy it with cash and fund it with the HELOC. But because the HELOC, you know, the line of credit is so it's such a large amount of money, I started to think, okay, now I've got $150,000 with the SBA money and my cash. 
Let's add one hundred and sixty thousand dollars to it. Now we're up to three hundred and ten thousand dollars. Three hundred and ten. My idea is, I keep getting. We we bought my forever home for eight hundred and seventy thousand. I think eight sixty nine. Right, Russell, you're better at memorizing numbers than I am. It was somewhere around there, and I know we had cl- uh, substantial closing costs and uh, credit on that too. Right. So, um, which, by the way, again, I think I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but I paid. I only used twenty thousand dollars of my own money. We got so good, at, even though I was a you know like always down to the last dollar and questionable on DTI and things like that. By the end, Russell and I had cracked the code and figured it out how to make me lendable. That when I bought my forever home just before I quit my job, I only had to put the twenty thousand dollars in escrow money down. Every I used the HELOC to pay for my down payment. Somehow it didn't affect my DTI enough that I was able to use $160,000 for the down payment because I had just bought a property months before. Um, so I had depleted all my cash. But we somehow made it work, and I only had to put $20,000 in to buy this $870,000 house. Yeah, one of my favorite things about that purchase was um – so we use Joe Nalls at Caliber Home Loans, I believe, for this uh, purchase. Also, if we're going to hype Scott, we got to, I mean, Joseph is top notch lender. If you're listening, I mean, Joseph is the man. But um, one of the things I love in that purchase is so Ron, in doing all these funky transactions, is probably one of the only people I know that's actually read through all the Fannie Mae guidelines on loans. <laughs> and, um, and he finds these weird little things and Joe goes and Joe knows Joe knows his shit. He goes, you know what? Every time I talk to Ron, I learn something new about the guidelines. <laughs> That's my favorite, like real estate financing <laughs> joke of all time. Like, <laughs> but Joseph was a, if, if you talk about like David Green talks about his core four or whatever, I mean, you have to have the real estate agent. That's Russell. You have to have the lenders. I mean, if you, but if you have a good relationship with the lenders, because they want to, here's make, the thing I think a lot of people overlook, you need multiple lenders because they do different things, right? So Joe's straight conventional can do creative things in that space, but he didn't do any commercial loans, right? So we need commercial lenders too. Um, and different, right? Different people have different strengths, right? So you need a large lending uh, network. And what I've learned when we, you were talking about the, the you're using your assets correctly and whatever this is the, when I say I figured everything out, one of the things I figured out is how when I busted out of the poverty mentality, I figured out what rich people do. Rich people use their assets to acquire other assets with loans because loan money is tax free. And then hopefully that asset you're acquiring, at least in the beginning, is another cash flowing asset. In the end, you buy boats and stuff, yachts and, you know, crazy multi-million dollar homes that you're, you know, you never go in 20 other rooms or whatever. All right, we're going to cut off this conversation here. This conversation went really, really long, like many of ours do. So we're going to continue this conversation next week. Um, But thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts. 